The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear Matthew Lynn's thoughts on how gas shortages could lead to a very cold winter, Tanya Gold with a critical take on critics, and finally, James Innes Smith bigs up the bungalow. First up, Matthew Lynn. The stairs won't light, the boiler won't fire up, pipes are frozen and the water has stopped running. Welcome to Christmas 2021. Amid a fierce cold snap, with another beast from the east blasting across the country, the UK's meagre stockpiles of gas have been exhausted, and the country has plunged into a crisis. Old people are dying and the rest of us are doing our best to keep warm. The closest thing to the apocalypse most of us would experience in our lifetimes has arrived. Well, perhaps. It is easy to sketch out lurid scenarios of what might happen if the country runs out of gas. In reality, it won't be that bad. Before we get there, we will see industrial closures and then some form of rationing. But that doesn't mean it won't be a serious problem. A gas emergency will cause huge disruption to the economy, widespread shortages and a political crisis from which even the Johnson administration, with its formidable powers for bouncing back, may not recover. There is no question there is a real risk of a serious shortage of gas this winter. The price of every form of energy has rocketed in the past six months, but gas most of all. At the start of September, if you were in the market for a thousand cubic metres of gas, the standard trading unit, you could get one for just over $500. By the middle of the month that had jumped $800, and by its close it was above $1,000, an all-time high. By Tuesday, gas prices were up another 23%. You don't need to know very much about economics to work out that prices only spiral up like that when increases in demand meet a squeezed supply and a crisis point is close. The problem for the UK is that we have very low reserves of natural gas. We have enough stored for four or five winter days, far less than most European countries. While there were plentiful supplies from Norway and Russia, super tankers that could bring it in from around the world and production from the North Sea that could be ramped up when necessary, that didn't matter very much. But in a market as tight as this one, and with every country scrambling to keep reserves topped up, it is a critical weakness. What are the chances of the gas running out? One analysis in the city puts it at 30% sometime over the winter, and a spell of cold weather, which dramatically increases demand, will push those odds even higher. We may be lucky and get through this, but you wouldn't want to bet your last logs for the fireplace on it. That matters. In the UK, 87% of homes rely on gas for heating, up from 45% in 1975, the last time there was a major energy crisis. Most rely on it for cooking as well. While the microwave can always heat up some pot noodles if necessary, assuming electricity is still working, that isn't going to keep anyone warm. Of course, we're not likely to get to that point. If reserves run critically low, we will start restricting usage. Factories will be put on a three-day week, hitting industries such as chemicals, food, minerals and paper. Next, they may be closed completely. After that, schools and offices may go to a three-day week as well. And of course, the retailers, a mall in winter needs a lot of heating. Then, 
Three-day closures could be turned into the whole week and demand will come down. Roughly 40% of our electricity comes from gas. Closing offices, shops and factories with free reserves for home heating and if necessary, we could use more oil to keep the power generators running. We hope the government has a plan somewhere, although as Mike Tyson famously observed, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. With industrial and office closures and schools shutting down, we should make it through to the spring without switching off anyone's gas boiler. But there is no question it will be a political humiliation. The government would have been exposed as dangerously inept, and whatever reputation for competence it has left may not recover. That was Matthew Lynn. Next, we have Tanya Gold. The pandemic was bad for criticism, with its universal dogma of kindness. Restaurant, theatre, film and book critics felt compelled to be kind, as if criticism itself was coughing at a deathbed. But who does this kindness benefit? Last year, I reviewed Michael Rosen's book about his COVID-19-related coma, Many Different Kinds of Love. I liked it, but I suggested that publishing the notes people had written to him as he lay in the coma was a waste of both their time and ours. Rosen didn't like this and moaned on Twitter. I think they are the power and the beauty of the ordinary. And how extraordinary that this is ordinary. But surely the function of criticism is to try to separate the ordinary from the extraordinary. Rosen's followers were duly cross. A few replies later, he got what I think he wanted all along. Every part of your book was perfect. I hope Rosen, or Mr Kfetch as he calls himself, was made happier by this review, but I worry that criticism is sinking to enemies exacerbated by pandemic. Relativism of quality, you did your best, well done. The deprofessionalisation and decline of journalism, the parallel rise in marketing, and the fear of a Twitter backlash, which is laughable because Twitter is the most critical place on earth. Don't read Sally Rooney if you don't like her, said another writer on Twitter recently, which really means shut up if you didn't like my novel. Cinema is flagging too. The title of the new James Bond film is No Time to Die. British critics have taken that very literally and applied it to the film industry, not the film. The new Bond film won five stars almost everywhere in Britain, though American and female critics were a little less insane. I know that some male reviewers cannot separate themselves from James Bond and are reviewing their own dreams of being, but a five-star film is, by definition, a perfect film, a film that cannot be bettered. If No Time to Die is a five-star film, and it isn't, What is Citizen Kane? What is All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard? Six stars? Eleven stars? Pass? Who benefits from an absence of criticism? Not the consumer. Pauline Kael, the greatest American film critic, who understood that you cannot love if you cannot hate, said a world without criticism is just advertising. Movies, far more than the traditional arts, are tied to big money, she wrote. Without a few independent critics, there's nothing between the public and the advertisers. American cinema was declining when Kale gave up her pen, and it has since declined yet further. I don't imagine studio executives wept when she retired. Kale would be appalled at the spectacle of film writing nowadays. Journalists meet actors and gasp in awe. The wise editor has given up on demanding hacks ask good questions and just invites actors to interview other actors. This is how one broadsheet chose to display Daniel Craig this week. It is barely less disgusting than a journalist on her knees, and cheaper too, I would imagine. It is also funny. Restaurant critics are not blameless either. Some of us look to accentuate the positive during the pandemic and eliminate the negative. I learnt years ago to refuse requests to meet restaurant PRs. Good ones know that all marketing is based on personal relationships and to know them is to want to please them. You cannot have two masters. I have one and it is you. Unfortunately, not everyone accepts this. In 2015, I wrote a long review of some obscene Manhattan restaurants. An editor at Eater.com 
tweeted her emotional response to this review. She was too angry for it to be an intellectual response, and now I know why. One of the restaurants I wrote about was Thomas Keller's Absurd Per Se. The quick review is, don't go there. I learned that she had visited Per Se and disliked it, but didn't tell her readers because she wrote later, I was scared to. It is very scary to assess a titan of American dining and publicly declare that you find his work to be subpar. If you buy into the mythology of the chef as genius, the chef as artiste, when you dislike something, you'll wonder, is it my fault? Scared of a restaurant? Are you mad? You might think that a woman this socially anxious would think to retire from criticism. Ha! She is now writing about food for the New Yorker, whose readers should check their wallets. You might think, too, that it doesn't matter if critics apply a little slate of hand, if they're kinder than they should be, or lazier, or more timid, or more anxious to be loved. But if we lose the hunger for criticism in art, we will lose it everywhere. We will lose it where it really matters. That was Tanya Gold. And finally, James Innes-Smith. We keep hearing about the importance of levelling up. Architects tasked with the responsibility of building new homes, however, might want to consider levelling across. With land prices at a premium, bungalows may not appear to be the most prudent use of limited space, but lateral living has plenty to recommend it. Originally built for early European settlers in India, the first UK bungalows, from the Hindi word bangla, meaning belonging to Bengal, appeared in Westgate on the north coast of Kent in 1869. These early examples tended to be austere holiday homes constructed from prefabricated corrugated iron. Over in the US, grander structures became increasingly popular with the arts and crafts movement of the early 20th century. Clad in folksy weatherboard and surrounded by ornate verandas, these craftsmen's cottages were ideal for sleepy afternoons in a rocking chair. In cities such as Mumbai, Los Angeles and Sydney, Bungalows are now ubiquitous across every class of neighbourhood. Indeed, the demand for colonial-era bungalows in Singapore and Malaysia has rocketed in recent years. Over here, we tend to disparage single-storey houses as little more than middle-class retirement homes for the terminally dreary. This may have something to do with the drab uniformity of the architecture. Most of the examples you see today are tatty hangovers from the 1960s and 70s, when utility tranced aesthetics. British bungalows contain little of their colonial cousin's charm, and even now, architects tend to shy away from the bold glass and steel designs found in Scandinavian countries, preferring the blandness of a mock Tudor gable or frosted glass porch. The mass adoption of UPVC windows hasn't helped. There are some notable exceptions, of course, such as Wedgwood House in Suffolk, this small but pleasingly proportioned steel frame structure built in 1974 by architects Aldington and Craig is heavily influenced by the clean lines of Mies von der Rose's Farnsworth House in Illinois. Floor-to-ceiling glass panels allow nature to meld seamlessly with the light-filled interior. The house appears to be floating above its lush gardens. For those who care about sustainability, single-storey houses are a wise investment. Owners need never worry about expensive stair lifts or having to move out of a beloved family home. Once doors have been widened to allow for wheelchair access, bungalow dwellers are pretty much set up for life. Green penny pinchers will love bungalows too, 
They are much cheaper to heat than your average Victorian two-up, two-down, where most of the heat ends up in the loft. The Grenfell tragedy has forced councils to rethink their mania for building skywards. Few people really like the concrete utilitarianism of tower blocks. These buildings have effectively killed off the sort of neighbourliness essential to a healthy, functioning society. If the government is serious about building back better, it needs to start erecting houses people enjoy coming home to. Aesthetic charm doesn't have to cost the earth. All we need are some visionary architects to revive the beauty of the bungalow. That was James Innes-Smith. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.